Welcome to the Westside Gathering Podcast, and thanks for making the time to learn and grow with us. Here, you'll find teaching from our live Sunday gatherings. After the message, we'll say a little more about our church and how you can connect. But for now, let's jump right in. Well, good morning. It's uh, a privilege to take part in this uh, Flickering Lampstand series and uh, to come and share with you uh, in relation to the fifth church, the church in Sardis, uh, this fifth flickering lampstand uh, that we are, are looking into. Uh, and Sardis uh, was a city in the first century of around 60 to 100,000 people uh, in Asia Minor. They seem to have known the Dickensian uh, best of times and worst of times. Uh, it his, its history included periods of wealth from gold discoveries, commerce, and agriculture. Uh, and after an earthquake in uh, year 17 of the first century, uh, its diverse population was rebuilt to affluence with the help of Rome. And it's to the gathering of Christians living in the post-disaster midst of apparent pluralism and prosperity that John records the following message in, in Revelation 3. He writes, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a name of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is on the point of death, for I have not found your works perfect in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, obey it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Yet you, will have, yet you have still a few persons in Sardis who have not spoiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. If you conquer, you will be clothed like them in white robes, and I will not blot your name out of the book of life. I will confess your name before my Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has an ear to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Amen. If the church in Sardis struggled with their identity in the midst of pluralism, uh, one of the commentators of this passage, uh, Joseph Mangini, finds that the message articulated in Revelation 3 is there to offer clarity. Right? In the midst of, uh, we live in the midst of a lot of questions about identity, uncertainty, who are we? Uh, and sometimes we face that as a church. We stand in some form of identity crisis. Well, Mangini writes, the letter to the church at Sardis opens with a reminder of what the church truly is. It is the community held and sustained by Christ, the living one, who breathes the life-giving spirit upon his people. As such, it is a community whose very essence is defined by life. The problem, though, stated in the first verse of the passage, is that the church in Sardis failed to live up to its name. I know your works. You have a name of being alive, but you are dead. They are, in short, failing to be who, in essence, they are by definition in Christ. Thus, the core message uh, uh, to the church in Sardis begins with this command, wake up. But what does this mean? Well, we have probably lots of uh, experience with waking up. Uh, if we're here today, most of us did it today and successfully in, in days previously. Uh, I spent six years living in a dorm, uh, the last two years of my high school education and then four years of college. And of all the things that gave me, it gave me a lot of different experiences with waking up. 
Sorry, apparently my muscles are too strong for this jacket and I'm catching cords here. All right. <clears throat> I know my children are here and they're laughing about the muscles part. I don't appreciate it. Right. Um, but waking up in dorm life, there's a lot of different ways. I remember when I was a, a grade 11 student, Saturday mornings, I mean, you'd stayed up late all week, especially Friday night. So Saturday morning, you'd sleep in. And one of the first memories I have of being woken up was uh, two yahoos in my hall who decided at like 8 o'clock on Saturday morning, they would construct two-by-four bunk beds for their, for their room. So all this hammering and smashing. Now, that was the tamest way that I was woken up. Uh, when I was turning 17, uh, later in, into the next year, I remember waking up at about a couple of minutes after midnight, my arms pinned behind my head as my friends in the hall were wiping uh, some kind of hair removal cream into my armpits, right? Uh, again, one of the tamer <laughs> ways. Uh, the next year, these are all in high school, uh, perhaps, obviously. Uh, I remember waking up, hearing faint screams down the hallway, but periodic. I heard one, the faintest first, the next one was a little bit you know, stronger. About five minutes later, another one came stronger still. And I realized you know, somebody was doing something you know, to try and wake people up. And what it was is he'd, he'd had an electric shock device and he was sneaking into rooms and going under the covers to, to shock them. So with the warning I'd received, I made sure he screamed and not me when he came into my room. Uh, but there was another activity uh, called trucking. And if you've ever lived in a dorm situation with adolescent guys, you may be familiar with this, but uh, I remember watching it one time. This didn't happen to me, but I remember watching, and, and two guys held flashlights over someone who was sleeping, and, uh, and you just slowly said, truck, 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 and they would chant it and get louder. And uh, as they got louder, uh, he started to stir, and once he started to stir a little bit, they'd smack him in the face with a pillow. And, uh, you know, the experience of, oh, you're being hit, you know, you're probably dreaming that you're being hit by a truck. And I remember the lower half of his body flipping up, going down, his upper half flipping up. It was, it was quite the experience. Uh, but, it, <laughs> you know, these things tend to evolve. And uh, when I was in college, I remember being woken up one night by two guys in my hall, and they said, John, we're going to get Jake, who was my roommate. I said, don't jump us. And I was groggy. I didn't know what was going on. But I slowly, you know, kind of raised onto my elbow and looked across the room. And uh, before I knew it, I, I saw there was a flashlight shining. And all of a sudden, I heard a chainsaw start. And a wave of gas hit me. And uh, this chainless chainsaw <laughs> was lowered onto the arm of my roommate as he slowly awoke. Slowly to the point of when the chainsaw landed on him. After that point, there was a lot of commotion. Uh, lots of screaming. Lots of Christian swearing. Uh, <laughs> lots of running. And uh, my roommate ran out the door chasing these guys. I thought about things for a moment, and I thought, this could be a long night. So when he came back in the door, he's like, John. And I said, <sighs> and he's like, you slept through that? And he went to bed, thought it was a dream the next day. It was, it was quite an experience. Uh, but there's a variety of ways of, of waking up. Uh, those, those are the highlights for me in dorm life of, of being awakened. Uh, I'm sure I'm, I'm probably missing some. Uh, we get some in Scripture as well. No chainsaws, uh, uh, very little trucking, I believe. Uh, but one of the famous stories of waking up is one, the one we see in 1 Samuel 3, where God is calling out to Samuel. And Samuel keeps think, thinking that it's Eli, so he goes to Eli, yes, what do you like? And after three times, Eli says, you know, it's, it's probably God calling to you. So when he does, you know, speak back, say, speak, for your servant is listening. And so Samuel does, follows his instructions, and God speaks to Samuel, 
Of course, what he communicates is the judgment that's going to come to Eli, the priest, because of his poor parenting of his children, uh, because of the blasphemy that his sons uh, have been speaking out against God. Well, the call to wake up that we find in Sardis is, you know, it's, it's a startling wake-up call. It's a wake-up call that's not dissimilar from the one that Samuel heard in relation to Eli. There's, there's judgment involved here. And we see in verses 2 and 3, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is on the point of death, for I have not found your works perfect in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, obey it and repent. So what we see here is, is something similar. If Eli is being called onto the carpet for his poor parenting, we might even say for his poor disciple-making of his sons, that's something we see in Sardis. Sardis is characterized by a poor discipleship. And they need to wake up from this poor discipleship. Now we might ask, well, what does poor discipleship, what does poor disciple-making look like? Uh, and I think we can suggest three characteristics here. One is a lack of integrity. Now, when you think of integrity, you probably think of, uh, you know, if you're going to identify a person with integrity, they're probably someone who you think is honest. Uh, we probably think they have uh, high moral standards. Uh, now, in our, in our uh, age and society, there's a floating scale on what we mean by high moral standards. But we, we have something like that in mind. Honesty, high moral standards, uh, you know, faithfulness. Uh, but we need to, you know, grab something a little deeper from this term. Uh, and when we think of integrity, we, we need to think of integration, right? We might think at the very least of the integration of faith and action, the integration of, uh, of the gospel into our lives. And we see in the very first verse, right, you have the name of being alive but are dead. You have the name of those for whom life has been breathed in by the Spirit, yet you are dead. Sardis integrate the life-giving of God into your lives as a church. They bore the name of Christ, but were, in fact, kind of a zombified gathering. Actually, they're, they're kind of worse. Zombies, from my understanding, uh, are the living dead, who, at least from popular depictions, bear the signs of death despite living in some undead way. Sardis looked active and alive, but were in the eyes of God dead. His, the life he has breathed into them for them needs to, to take root. It needs to bear itself out in their lives and in their witness as a church. They're also judged for incomplete works. Uh, in addition to lacking integrity, uh, we read that their works have not been found perfect in the sight of God. Now, we could translate the word perfect here as, as complete, or in this context, as incomplete or imperfect. Uh, N.T. Wright refers to this as a polite way of saying that their Christian way of life leaves a lot to be desired. Perhaps that goes without saying, since they, they lack integrity. Um, but what does it mean that their, their Christian way of life leaves a lot to be desired, that it's incomplete? We, we might argue, well, listen, it's not going to be complete, full, perfect until they're in God's eternal presence and he reveals them in the fullness of what it means to be the children of God. Right? We, we understand that from reading the New Testament. 
But something is lacking here. Something is imperfect. And while the, the text itself in Revelation 3 doesn't, doesn't you know, list these things for us directly, we can infer, I think, at least four characteristics, four things that God is looking to see in this church but is not finding. One would be spiritual fruit, that Sardis is marked by a lack of spiritual fruit, right? Uh, they have the name of being alive but are dead. Sardis, in that sense, is like the fig tree condemned by Jesus in Matthew 21, right? Uh, he's walking along the road, sees a fig tree, and goes to it in his hunger, but he finds nothing but leaves. And he says to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. At once the tree withers. Well, Sardis is at risk of a similar fate, right? Uh, here's this church. You expect to see life. They're bearing the name of Christ, but there's no fruit, or we can infer there's, there's likely a no fruit or a lack of fruit. Uh, it's a church likely lacking in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and the like. Moreover, since the church did not likely exist in a vacuum, perhaps we could expect to find you know, signs of illness on the leaves themselves. Maybe the works of the flesh that Paul outlines in Galatians 5 are, are at least being hinted at in this church. But we know that a vibrant church bearing the name of Christ, advertising life, should be a church bearing spiritual fruit. It should also be a church of unity. And so perhaps what we find in Sardis is disunity. Paul writes in an earlier letter to the, in, to the Galatians, in Christ Jesus you were all children of God through faith, and many of you were baptized into Christ, and you have been clothed uh, and have clothed yourselves in Christ. To be one in Christ is to be clothed in him. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 12 to 13, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, uh, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Paul's a, you know, beating a bit of a dead horse here. Listen, to be the church is to, is to be one. Not just one in any old way. It's to be one in Christ. It's to be clothed in Christ. And we can suspect that perhaps Sardis isn't evidencing what their baptism would indicate. That they're not demonstrating this oneness in Christ. It's difficult to imagine that a church advertising life but being in fact dead would be unified in a true sense. And going hand in hand with unity are spiritual gifts. These gifts meant to strengthen and build up the church. And so it would be clear that a disunity uh, would probably carry with it a failure to employ these spiritual gifts for the strengthening of the body. And we read about this in 1 Corinthians 12. We read about this in Ephesians 4. Uh, in Ephesians 4, Paul writes, the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament with uh, which it is equipped, each part working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. Right, a church that has the breath of life from the Holy Spirit should be a church where spiritual gifts are known, are being developed, are flourishing, and flourishing to what end? The strengthening of the body. 
the strengthening of the unity of the body. Now, I, I won't ask for a show of hands, but it's quite possible that many of us are uncertain about our spiritual gifts or lack confidence in using our spiritual gifts or have no idea what spiritual gifts are, <laughs> right? Some of these things sometimes don't get the attention they need. We might infer that Sardis is a case in point. And it's a reminder to us, right? A church that has the breath of life from Christ should be a church where spiritual gifts are known, developed, and flourishing. And in all of this, it's highly likely that this church is not conforming to the image of Christ. Highly likely is probably a gentle way of putting that, right? It's more likely that it's a deformed church. These incomplete works of the church must be a failure to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. We, we might look at a lot of signs of growth, and in fact, perhaps Sardis had some way of measuring their growth. Maybe they measured it through attendance. Uh, you know, maybe they measured it through activities that they did. Those would seem like signs of life. Yet there is no life that matters that isn't conformity to Christ that isn't growing up, as Paul writes in Ephesians 4, growing up into him who is the head. And so, you know, when we, when we think of uh, the incomplete works of the church, it's a reminder to us, are we cultivating spiritual fruit? Are we fostering the unity of the body, letting it be strengthened by the discovery, the development, and the exercise of spiritual gifts? And are we, in, are we concerned about these things because these are things that shape us and form us into the image of Christ, right? If, if these are signs of unhealth, of death, we want to live in the opposite. We want to see fruit. We want to foster unity. We want to strengthen the bonds of love. We want to live so that the love of Christ is evident in us. Now, it's, it's uh, in terms of the third main characteristic uh, to go along with a lack of integrity and incomplete works, uh, and, and perhaps this follows, obviously, that the idea of spiritual laziness, right? Uh, Revelation 3, 4 refers to a few persons in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. Obviously, others, seemingly the majority, have. Uh, Wright refers to this as spiritual laziness. Craig Coyster uh, talks about the soiling of clothes as being a common image for sin. This could mean a church that simply tolerates immorality, uh, perhaps a, just a general lack of discipline. Now, it could be a bigger problem than that, too, and maybe a problem that we face more significantly today in that we have a difficult time recognizing immorality. Uh, N.T. Wright, in a, in a smaller book called the, um, the Justice of God, that's not the title of the book, something's slipping off here and it's not in my notes, Evil and the Justice of God, sorry. He talks about a new problem of evil, and a part of that new problem of evil is that, uh, is that you know, when something evil happens, we are shocked and surprised, and we don't know what to do. Now, he offers a number of reasons for that, but one of the reasons is that maybe we're not so in tune with evil, or even that evil isn't just depicted in horror movies, but is depicted in the mundane, ordinary aspects of life. 
that we're not tracking. There's a call here to spiritual vibrancy, and that is a rejection of spiritual laziness. Right? To be a church that, that follows God, that allows him to finish what he's just started, to continue the good work he's begun. So in all of this, we have a portrait of the poor practice of discipleship, and it is a vital warning to us today. Like Sardis, we must wake up to the life of being the church of Christ. Now, to take a little interlude here, because this theme of waking up uh, is, is not, you know, we're, we're reading an ancient text, but we live in a woke culture, right? We're, we're not uh, unfamiliar with the idea. Uh, now, to be woke, and this is great for me as a, a gray head, you know, explaining woke culture to you, I'm sure you're all gonna appreciate that, uh, right? But it's, it's basically this alertness to social injustices, right? But not, not just an alertness to it. It's remaining alert, keeping watch to social injustice, especially when you're being told there is no injustice, right? Now, it's, it's really important for us to understand that because there's some sorting out to do, right? Not all injustices are created equal or even represent maybe what we would say is injustice, but the paradigmatic Social injustice that the woke idea of wokeness kind of initially referred to is racial injustice, right? Being told that, oh, there's racial equality at a time when a traffic stop can cost you your life, right? So there's something important, right? Uh, What I'm saying here isn't dismissing the idea of being alert to social injustice, and maybe especially when you're being told everything's all right. But wokeness in that sense isn't the wakefulness of Revelation 3. Right, the wakefulness of Revelation 3 is speaking to being awakened by the Spirit. Right? Being woke in a secular sense uh, and what the church was, in Sardis was called to aren't the same thing. Uh, Oliver O'Donovan, uh, Anglican theologian, uh, explains that being wakeful is being called to life in the Spirit and to being led by the Holy Spirit in life. That is the life of the church, the life that is found to be lacking in Sardis. And so Donovan explains, the command to wake is addressed in the New Testament chiefly to the church, and in this case, directly to Sardis. The, the command puts the church, it puts Sardis on the spot. And I'm on the spot again, just one second. <laughs> again, I shouldn't have worked out yesterday, Carter, I just, right? Okay. <clears throat> this was my pre-workout suit fitting, and, and it's, not, it's, not, it's not going. So this is what we... we uh, Observe in this message of Sardis, if you do not wake up, right, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I come to you. O'Donovan refers to this when he writes, ignorance of the moment and thief-like suddenness of the Lord's return are for John not merely the universal conditions within which faithfulness must be exercised. They are God's judgment on unfaithfulness. Right? This thief-like, not knowing when Christ is returned, is God's judgment on unfaithfulness. It is the unwakeful servant who will encounter the Lord as a thief and who will not know the moment of his coming. Now, O'Donovan doesn't then go on to write, and I can tell you that on September 5th, 2022, right, he's not trying to make some prediction of the return of Christ into time, but he's saying you need to be watchful and wakeful and being unwakeful 
right, just shows that you are not aware of God's work, of his actions, of his return, of what is coming, the hope that draws you forward. So moreover, the one who remains wakeful will have clean clothes ready to meet the master, rather than being ashamed in soiled garments. Have you ever dressed incorrectly for an occasion? I'm feeling a bit little like that right now with this wire. I remember I was working on a conference uh, when I was doing my graduate studies, and we had a meeting prior to the conference, and you probably need to know my history a little bit here, that you know, I, I, my work as a worker in high school, my initiation into work was things like delivering papers, working at McDonald's, roofing houses. Uh, you know, I went to uh, college, then I was a youth pastor, and, and a common theme there would be, you know, no offense to Kelly at all, uh, but as a young guy, I, people didn't like how I dressed. <laughs> okay. uh, and, and you weren't, you know, you didn't wear a suit and tie. That wasn't the uniform of a youth pastor. Uh, am I right, Kelly? That's, yeah, fair. Okay. Um, right, so uh, when I went to this meeting prior to this conference, they said, well, we're going to wear business casual for the, uh, you know, for the conference. Again, I had roofed houses. I had been a youth pastor. What's business casual? I didn't ask. All I heard was casual. So I wore jeans and a button-up shirt, and to add insult to injury, there was a massive downpour as I walked for 20 minutes from the train to the conference place. So I, I arrived there underdressed and over-soaked. And, uh, and it was uncomfortable, right? Well, well, you know, what we're getting at here are much higher stakes, right? Being properly clothed. And we have to recognize Right? It's, we don't clothe ourselves. It's being clothed in Christ. So being wakeful is about relating the accomplishments of Christ in the past. Right? It's being clothed in Christ because of, because of what he has done. It's being drawn forward in hope to the future that he promises. But it is also immediate attention to the present because of what he's done in the past and what he draws us forward to in the future. We are called to be led here and now as God's people. We have the Holy Spirit as a deposit of what will come. But we're not, we're not awaiting that day as those who are sitting around. We are called to wake up, live the resurrected life now. Live it in each coming moment. So to conclude our engagement with, with uh, O'Donovan here, I'm sorry, I use the word conclude. You should never do that when you're not really at the conclusion, so I, I, I'm going to apologize there. Uh, wakefulness is anything but a settled state, something we may presume on as we can usually presume we are awake as we go about our business. It brings us sharply back to the task at hand, the deed to be performed, the life to be lived. Waking is thrust upon us. We do not consider it, attempt it, and then perhaps achieve it, we are claimed for it, seized by it. That is why it is not just one metaphor among many for moral experience, but stands guard over the birth of a renewed moral responsibility. Being wakeful, being awakened, living the life we're called to live. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us be guided by the Spirit. That is the life to be lived, and the living of which has been found wanting in Sardis. So what will an awakened or wakeful church look like? Well, we'll be aware of the truth. A wakeful church will be aware of the truth. Well, there's a lot of truth to be aware of, right? But let's, let's you know, start with big things 
and we'll let's, we'll, you know, we can settle some of the others. Uh, what is the central Christian belief? Okay, and we'll leave that rhetorical for the moment. Right, the central Christian belief. Well, if, if you've read Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis's section on, on uh, Christian, what Christians believe, he writes there on page 54, the central Christian belief is that Christ's death has somehow put us right with God and given us a fresh start. Let, let's be aware of this core feature of our convictions, of our beings, that needs to then water the other convictions and order them. Paul makes the same basic claim in 1 Corinthians 15, but places the emphasis on resurrection instead of crucifixion, which is really a distinction without a difference. Right? He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain, and your faith has been in vain. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. Let's hold that truth in front of us. Let's let it sink into us. Let's be aware of the truth of the resurrection of Christ. Let's be attentive to our agency. Okay, you might be going, all right, I'm done. These are too many words that I have to look up and define. What do we mean by agency? Uh, it doesn't mean you need an agent, uh, you know, in, in terms of heading out uh, and, and getting somebody to in, in your employ. Uh, but it, it means here, be, to be attentive to our agency is to not watch the world as through a window. Right? We're not simply spectators and observers in this life. Uh, it means we don't just observe it, we recognize ourselves as those making our way intentionally through the world, as O'Donovan puts it. We don't just look at the world, we feel our way through it and experience it as we step purposefully one foot in front of the other. And of course, uh, we make missteps. We struggle against sin or we should struggle against sin. But this is how we make our way in the world. And it's here that, that you know, the message to Sardis is awake. Keep hold of your clothes. Don't become soiled. Let's be attentive to our agency as we make our way through this world. And let's be alert to possibilities for action. Right? Let's be alert to possibilities for action. Aware of the truth, attentive to agency, and alert to possibilities of action. And, and uh, leaning on O'Donovan once more here, he says, wakefulness calls us to be alert to the next moment in which we may venture our living and acting, the moment which presents itself as a possibility. And for the Church of Christ, led by the Holy Spirit, the next moment presents us with a possibility for love, for loving action. I think the parable of the Good Samaritan is instructive here. In response to a question about one must, what one must do to inherit eternal life, Jesus affirms that the correct answer is that one must love the Lord uh, your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you know the story, seeking further clarification, the questioner asks the fatal question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus' response, very simply put, is your neighbor's the one whose need confronts you. The one whose presence before you offers an opportunity for loving action. We need to be, uh, we need to be alert to the possibilities of action, but not any kind of action. The loving action that we are called to as God's children. What remains to be strengthened? I think it's very clear from Sardis, what remains to be strengthened is the remnant 
of those whose clothes are white, whose clothes are clean. Referring to this group, Jacques Ellul writes, this remnant cannot endure for long by itself as such. It is not itself the church. It cannot survive if the church is not reconstituted. A group faithful at the heart of the church does not survive indefinitely if the latter does not become truly the church. To this, Joseph Mangini adds, there is no indication that false teaching is even an issue in Sardis. This community is not devoid of the means of grace. What is lacking is that it does not use these means. In the absence of a lively communion of the Lord of life, the church is on the point of becoming dead. This remnant really is the paradigmatic flickering lampstand that their series is, is discussing. Uh, small, meager, st yet still the light of Christ remains. And it is to the support of this group that we are called, right? Wake up, strengthen what remains, fuel this light that is flickering. Pay attention to the spirit, to the spirit-breathed life that's in you. So uh, John offers three signs of spiritual vitality. One is remembrance. Remember you have received the Holy Spirit. Remember your baptism. Sit in remembrance at the Lord's table. Right? These, are, these are important pieces of remembrance. Even when we look at the text, right, we, we see that you know, these words, you know, why in the Great Commission uh, does Jesus give the words of baptism to baptize in the Father, name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Why does Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 charge us right, to continue on in these words that we have received from Christ? Right? These words matter. It matters that we remember them. It matters that we live in remembrance of them. We think of the Lord's Prayer. Here again, this, this quote, well, a spiritually vital church will be a church of prayer, a church of baptism and, and thanksgiving in the Lord's table. Uh, and we have the Lord's Prayer as a reminder. Here are these words of this prayer. Here's how Jesus taught us to pray. Let's remember these. Uh, remember the gospel. Remember the teaching of the apostles. Remember God's promises and, and hear them anew as you read Psalms in light of the resurrection of Christ. Hear these promises anew. So a spiritually vital church will be a church that is a church of remembrance. It will be a church of obedience. When we, when we sing out and when we pray the Lordship of Christ, we are also praying our submission to him. We are called to be those who live in obedience to Christ and live in obedience to the Spirit. We're called to live in God's creation as his image bearers. We need to seek through, sort out what it means to live in obedience in these ways. And because there's no perfect remembrance and there's no perfect obedience, we are called to repentance. Sardis is certainly called to repent of you know, their, their zombified spiritual existence. But repentance is also a way of life for the church. We are the repentant community. We don't perfectly obey. We don't even want to perfectly obey when we're honest with ourselves. We don't perfectly remember. And so we live as those in repentance. Paul in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, writes of the godly grief that produces repentance that leads to salvation. We need to value remembrance, obedience, and, 
And uh, you'd think I'd remember that one right away. Repentance. I just said it. What is at stake? Uh, if you do not wake up, the unwakeful church will encounter Christ as thief, bearing the judgment of their own ignorance. But if you conquer, if you awaken and keep watch, the awakened and wakeful church uh, experiences the fullness of life that comes with being in Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, despite the stakes, waking's not always easy. That's why we have this phrase of dragging ourselves out of bed. It's not always easy to wake up. And you may be in a, a period of your life where you can relate to the sleepwalking spirituality of Sardis. And you hear the call to wake up. But there's a struggle that comes with that, that call. Well, there's a real beauty that we see when we move to another waking story that we will conclude with, and I, I mean it this time, that we will conclude with uh, here. And that's the story of Lazarus. La Lazarus, sorry. In John 11, we observe here, waking is directly linked to resurrection. Uh, in John 11, uh, uh, Jesus is, uh, John is referring to those who wish to kill uh, him in Judea. His disciples, he's suggesting going back to Judea, back to where Lazarus is, uh, who he's been called to. Uh, and they're saying, well, the Jews wish to kill you there. But Jesus rebuffed his disciples' concerns about going there, uh, noting how you know, those who wanted to kill him are stumbling in the dark of night because the light is not with them as it is with him. He, the true light of the world, is unafraid of stumbling because he walks during the light of day. He is the light of day. As that light, he awakens Lazarus. And after praying to the Father, he does. He cried with a loud voice, come out, Lazarus. As the Gospels records it, the dead man came out. Making an even closer connection with the soiled clothes of Sardis, Lazarus walks out wearing the clothes of death but being made alive in Christ. Waking is hard. Thankfully, there is one who calls us out to wake up and who breathes life into us. What Jesus did for Lazarus foreshadowed not only his own resurrection, but ours as well. But it also calls us to wake up now to the resurrection life we have received in Christ. A church that fails to remember what it has received and heard from the Lord and that neglects obedience and repents to him, is a church that, like Sardis, has a name of being alive, but risks death in the only way that matters, in the sight of God. Let us wake up, then, to the resurrection life to which we have been called. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son. We thank you for your Spirit. We thank you for the life uh, won by Christ the life breathed into us by the Spirit. And Lord, we ask you to make clear to us the ways in which we are advertising life but living in death. Lord, we ask you to open our ears to hear the wake-up call, to identify those ways that we are not living as we should. Some of them may be very obvious, especially to those around us. Some of them may be hidden deep. Lord, we ask that in our inner spirit, you would awaken us. Remind us of the life you've given us. And Lord, strengthen us to live it now as we should. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. 
We hope this message helps guide you on your spiritual journey of discovering the life and message of Jesus. We update this podcast weekly, so why not hit subscribe and journey with us? Who are we? Westside Gathering is a local church in the West Island of Montreal. We're a simple community of faith where we want you to feel welcome, even if you're not into church or religion. We meet every Sunday, but you can also find smaller groups, environments, and resources for all ages between Sundays. Find out more at westsidegathering.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Vimeo. We'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, ask for help, or let us know how we can pray for you. If you'd like to contribute financially, just go to westsidegathering.com forward slash giving. Until next time, peace.